We are honored and privileged uh, to have Dr. Michael Easley join us and lead us this morning. Would you welcome him today? Thank you, Mo, and thanks uh, to Darren for uh, his gracious invitation. I'm uh, humbled and privileged to be with you. Sid and I have been fellowshipping with you for several months now, and it's just an honor to, to stand up here, and um, it's a delight. Let me pray for, um, for our time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that it's reliable, that you spoke and you did not stutter, that what we have we can depend upon when all around us is uh, falling apart, is questionable, is challenged, we can come back again and again to what you said. We can read it in so many different formats. It's so easy to grasp. Uh, help us to be good students, to be good disciples, to be good representatives of the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his name we ask and pray. Amen. And Mo called me Dr. Easley, as does Darren often. My name is actually Michael. Um, when I got my third degree, uh, you get your, you know, your bachelor's, your master's, and your doctoral work. Um, the, the axiom is now you're three degrees above zero. <laughs> so when I finished my doctorate, people said, are you going to be called Dr. Easley? And I said, you know, I really hadn't thought about it. And um, then I started feeling, well, you know, Dr. Easley sounds pretty good. And so I went home and I told Cindy, I said, you know, when uh, Katarina von Bora married Martin Luther, she always called him Dr. Luther his entire life. She never once called him Martin, always Dr. Luther. And she said, true story, she said, well, I'll call you Dr. Luther then. <laughs> anyway, but Michael is my name. So anyway. um, I put together a little PDF, you, no compulsion if you want this, it's free. Uh, if you go to info at michaelincontext.com, you send me an email, info at michaelincontext.com. We'll send it to you free of charge, no strings attached whatsoever. It's a little document that I put together. The, the Psalter, the, the books that we're reading, and I so appreciate the series, um, when, when you're going through the Psalms, it's a different form of literature. It's not like a narrative or didactic or pro, it's, it's complicated. Some people love the Psalms, some people go, I don't want to get the Psalms. And there's a reason for that. The English ear is a custom. We sang songs today, and we primarily with uh, rhyming meter and music put together, we can know the words pretty quickly. You can learn a new song pretty fast if you like the, the way it rhymes and the way the music is written for our English ear. Think with me for just a second about a Semitic or Hebrew ear. A Hebrew ear didn't have rhyme in Hebrew. They had structure. They had repetition. They used devices. Uh, and in this little document, I explained some of those devices. Parallelism is a big one. Repetition is a big one. What's called a chiasmus or a chiasmus, depending on if you're from the north or the south. Uh, the devices are used. They sound a little he heady. They're very easy to spot. And when you read the Psalms and you find yourself, going, what the world's going on here? Once you see some of these little tools, let's call them, you'll start appreciating the riches of the Psalms more and more and more. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, a seminarian, which in those days was only men, a seminarian had to have memorized the entire Psalter, all 150, and they had to meditate on them every day. It took about two hours for admission into seminary. Today, if you can fog a mirror, you can get into seminary and pay the tuition. Those days it was serious, but that tells us something about what the ancients valued and that these song hymns were not just 
top 40 or top 150, they taught theology, they taught history, they taught emotion. There's not a human emotion you have experienced you won't find in the Psalter. Not one anger, bitterness, lament, thanksgiving, joy, praise, confusion, imprecation. Imprecation, a term we don't use much. That's, dear God, kill my enemy. <laughs> you might like those psalms, you know. Uh, but all the emotions that the psalmist wrote about are sown in these 150 song hymns. And that's one reason I love the Psalter and this little document, info at michaelincontext.com, free of charge, we'll give it to you. And it's got some extra resources on it. And as we continue the summer, if you read this a little bit, all the different you know, passages are teaching, it, I think it will really help, help you. Well, I want to look at, with you at Psalm 116. So if you have a Bible or a cheater's edition where you click to it, find your way to Psalm 116, or we can read it off the screen in front of us. Let me read the first four, uh, two verses. God willing, we'll look at seven verses today, and then on the 15th, we'll finish up the psalm, uh, July 15th. Psalm 116, the first two verses, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. This is a personal psalm. It's a praise psalm. falls in the category of praise and victory. And the first thing, it's very obvious. He says, I love God because he heard me in my distress. That's the biggest point of this psalm. I love God because he heard me in my distress. Let's talk about what you and I love for just a minute. I love a good Mexican food restaurant. I love a good Mexican food restaurant. And Cindy and I will go to the, the, the holes in the wall anywhere to take out good Mexican food. Some of you love a steak. Some of you love uh, your horse. Some of you love dogs. Nobody loves cats. Um, so, some of you love ice cream. Some of you love your husband. Some of you love your wife. Some of you love your, your grandchildren. Some of you love your car. You love the summer. Some love the spring. Some love the snow. Some love the fall. We love stuff. We love people. How do you translate that love to loving God? It's a head-scratcher. Let's be candid. Maybe, maybe some of you got this figure out, and you can help me. It's a head-scratcher. How do I love God the way I love stuff and things and people on this planet? I love a beautiful sunrise, a beautiful sunset. I love a meal with my wife in our new house. I love filling the blank. My friends, I love, I don't love God the same way. Where's this disconnect? Now, granted, love's a lot of permutations. Nobody can define it. That's why you can write songs on it until Jesus comes back, because nobody can define it. But at the end of the day, the psalmist says, I love God because he heard me. We need to pay attention to this. And I think it will help you as it does help me. Now, when we think about a spiritual discipline of doing something because we're supposed to do it, it kind of falls flat. It's like a person that has, is on a team and they practice their position or their role, but they never get to play. You're not going to stay with that sport or activity too long if all you are is a sparring partner for the rest of the team. It's pretty boring. It's pretty anticlimactic. At some point, discipline has to move into application. Um, Cindy and I have been married 30, 40, 50, uh, excuse me, uh, 38 years this, this um, July. Some of you have been married much longer than us, much, much less than us. The love with which I married Cindy in 1980 is very different than the love with which I love her today. We've been through trials, infertility for years, 
health issues. She buried her brother very suddenly. We buried both her parents, buried my dad, all kinds of family drama, just like you. And those things have sown us. Did we always have fun doing them? No. Did we work through it and grow? In God's great kindness, I can stand here before you and say, we grew. And now we're like almost, we can fill in each other's sentences because we've been together so long. The love with which I married her is a very different love with which I have now at almost 38 years next month. And what encourages me about that is, okay, Lord, there's something transferable here. Through thick and thin, I learned to love and her me. And it wasn't the love with which we got married. Actually, that's just lust. We call it love, but it's just lust. You know, you get married. I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't believe in premarriage counseling other than compatibility. I believe in post-marriage counseling. After you've been married one year, now you'll listen. <laughs> you won't listen in pre-marriage. You're in love with love. You're intoxicated. You know, the hormones are going wonky. And you're just, you're, and then now, a year later, now we can talk. Because the love of what you marry is different than the love of what you live a long time together. And I think the believer can transfer that. Men and women in the ancient world were no different than you and me. I think we have a disconnect here the way we look at antiquity. We've got air conditioning. We've got technology that will do all kinds of amazing things. We have cars that are comfortable, that are reliable. We have homes that are warm in the winter and cool in the summer. We expect things to be a certain way everywhere we go. You know what? The intellect of the man and woman has not changed arguably one iota. Man was made in God's image. He, he didn't crawl up out of the soup. He was an image bearer. And these men and women had the same fears of infertility, of loneliness, of battle, of illness, of burying children, all, this, all the same laments and praises and petitions that you and I have. They're just the same. Yes, they lived in a wilderness, but they loved the spring waters. They loved in Getty. They loved to watch the wild goats in the mountains. They loved to go hunting. They loved to go uh, as family to celebrate to the festivals at Pentecost and at Passover. They loved family. They loved land. No different. We just think we're sophisticated. Now, when you think about a prayer relationship, one of the things that has helped Cindy and me tremendously, we've read scores of prayer books and how-to books, and um, I don't know how your prayer life is. The Psalter is primarily a prayer book. Petition, lament, complaint, aggravation, imprecation, enthronement, royalty, it's a prayer book. Um, we came across this book years ago. It's got a scintillating title, Handbook to Prayer. You think they could have done a little better with that, right? Handbook to Prayer. Ken Bo is a brilliant man. And what he's done with this, it's a 90-day little book uh, that you go through again and again and again and again. And it's got a week's prayer in the back. And it's a paint-by-numbers approach. So on the day, there's scripture that he has put in the book. And then after you read the scripture, pause to express your thoughts of praise and worship. Then there's some more scripture under the heading called Confession. Pause, to, you know, and he just paint-by-number prayer book. It's scripture. And there, we, when we have small groups in our home, which Cindy and I have on and off all our married life, uh, the last several groups, we, we make every couple get this, every person, and we, we say the first 90 days of our group, you're going to do this every day. 
might take you five minutes, might take you 20. We're not going to measure your time. I want you to get your nose in this book in the morning, but whatever works for you, whatever winds your watch, and you go through that one day. Here's the reason. When you go to lunch today, I triple dog dare you not to pray the same prayer you prayed yesterday at lunch. We're talking to the God of the universe, for goodness sakes. Why would we use cliche, repetition, droll, mindless, heartless words to talk to him when we're about to enjoy a meal without fear, harassment, without lack? We go anywhere you want to eat, go home. Th- there's we, well, No food. I love it when it, the threat of snow comes to Williams County. All the milk, eggs, bread, and cheese are gone. I love it. Like You don't have enough food in your cupboard to live for six months? Well, you got to have milk, cheese, and bread. Well, okay, whatever. Um, we're a funny people when it comes to our obsession with food. But have you stopped to thank God? God, you gave me the job to do this, the income to have. I can go out to eat without thinking twice about it. I can run my kids through five guys or whatever I like to do, to Taco Bell, whatever it is. I, I don't have to worry about it. I'm in the, I'm in the 1% of the world. And see, we, it's what we don't have. And prayer is a relationship, not a perfunctory set of things we say every single time. Okay, I'll get off that horse. Um, it's a relationship, not a religion. We're talking to the God of the universe and the Psalms. If nothing else, read a couple of verses of the Psalms before you eat. You got kids in the home? Put the Bible, hey guys, let's read three, three or four verses before we eat. And that's your prayer. Those are the prayers of the Psalter. Nothing wrong with that. Well, first of all, notice that he said, I love God because he hears my prayer. He's inclined his ear. It gives us an image. Hearing is different than listening, as we all know. If you're married, you can hear your wife but not listen to her. You can hear your husband but not listen to him. You can, you can even interject and feign halfway through the conversation. You can kind of, if you're a really smart spouse, you can restate something. And this. Oh, so they're really unhappy with that. Oh, they're really, and they go on. For, you can ignore the whole thing and then hear a little phrase. And you know what happened? What happened then? And they think you're listening. <laughs> Every husband and wife has done this. Well, you want somebody to listen to you, not hear you. Right. I have a friend who's with the Lord now who is a psychologist for many, many years. And he told me, Michael, people cut them off and pay me hundreds of dollars an hour just to have me listen to them. Not hear, but listen. The psalmist says, I love God because he listens to me. He hears me. The aspect of the word hearing is I expect a response from you. That's when I know I've been heard and listened to is when you say, oh, you can interact with me on it. You might even interrupt me and say, wait, 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 wait. You're talking about this. Do you really mean? And that might help a verbal processor think about how they're talking about their issue. That's a listening relationship. That's someone who's integrated into hearing us. David, we don't know that he wrote this one. There's no attribution to the psalm. But let's just say it to David. David says, I love God because he heard me. He listened to me. Knowing that I'm heard makes a lot of difference. If you understand me, if I, under, if I get you, we might not have solved anything, but I feel a, a solidarity. Wow, they appreciate that. A listening friend is gold. And David says, I love God because he hears me. You understand this? God hears you. 
He hears you. He's not deaf. He's not taking a nap. He's not off duty. And he knows you. Incline is an interesting word also. It means to stretch out or reach out. The psalmist used a device called anthropomorphism. Big word, anthropomorphism. If I was to say that tree, look at the arms on that oak, you would know what I meant. Big branches. It doesn't have arms, but they look like arms. That's anthropomorphism, ascribing a human attribute to something that's not human. So when the psalmist talk about the eyes of the Lord, about you know God's strength, God's like a rock. I mean, we don't envision God as a rock man. Maybe you do. Uh, it's anthropomorphism. It's using human terms to explain God. He says the inclined, the Hebrew word means to like bend or stretch over. And how many of us, probably universal, probably across any type of culture, doesn't know what this means? Someone has cupped their ear and leaned forward to hear what you're saying. He's inclined his ear to me. Voice and supplication are parallels. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication. Supplication is from a weaker person to a stronger person every time it's used. Supplication is a weaker person asking a stronger person. Mommy, can you do this for me? Daddy, can you fix this for me? Uh, I go to Cindy and I say, honey, uh, I'm okay with numbers. She's the numbers person in our home. When it's spreadsheets or really complex stuff, I go, honey, I need your eyes on this because this is your wheelhouse. I help. I'm a weaker person going to a stronger person. She needs my help. Honey, I can't reach this in the kitchen. Okay, I'll come do that. I'm her two-step. I'm her ladder. That's my contribution to the marriage. She does the numbers. I get things off high shelves. A weaker person asking a stronger person. That's what a supplication is. By the way, when you ask God for something, you're asking him for something that you can't do for yourself. You're asking the strong, the wise, the infinite to do something for the weak, the ignoble, and the finite. Will you do something for me? I love God because he hears my voice and my supplication. Um, Jeremiah 3 Verse 21 gives an interesting illustration of these same two words. A voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and supplications of the sons of Israel, because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Listen again. A voice is heard on the bare heights. Things are so bad, what should be a, a beautiful forest and a beautiful agricultural economy, it's a bare height. They've gone up to this bare hill to yell to God help. A voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and supplications, voice and supplications, same two words we have in our psalm, the supplications of the sons of Israel because they have perverted their way and they have forgotten the Lord their God. Jeremiah says they're pleading for mercy in their sin because they forgot God. I can't prove it. I would I write it in my mind in pencil. I think forgetting God is a sin. Because every time it's mentioned in Scripture, don't forget or remember, the implication is they're in sin. They've forgotten what God did. They don't believe in the works. Of God. They didn't remember his covenants. And that's what they're judged for. That's kind of chilling. And how do you remember? Got to get your nose in the book. Got to get your nose in the book. Got to get your nose in the book. Morning by morning, new verses I read. I've read this so many times, they fall apart and I buy another one. I, go, I never saw that before. Because we forget. We don't remember. 
Jeremiah references a voice in the wilderness as being heard. Back to you and me. Do you and I love God? The psalmist is saying he loves God because God listens to him. You see, that's not how we economize love, maybe a little bit in marriage, not how we economize love in the world. God, he says, I love you because you hear me. Our vernacular, you get me. You understand me. The irony of sin is that we think by sinning will somehow satiate this craving we have. Sin is always an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. It's always an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. Sexual activity outside the confines of a heterosexual monogamous marriage is an insatiable way. It won't ever satiate. It's a, here it is. We've got this desire for sex, for love, for money, for acquisition, for power. There are ways to utilize it, but sin illegitimizes it. And we try it this way because we think that's going to make us happy. Here's the thing I think most of us miss. If sin satisfied, we'd only have to sin once and it would be satiating. If I had this affair with this beautiful young woman, that would satisfy my lust problems. No, it won't. Just make it worse. If I finally get enough money so that I can do this, I won't be as greedy and have an avarice. Believe me, you get more, you want more. Money, sex, and power are the three umbrellas that I use in my own life and I've taught for decades. All of your sin falls under one of those umbrellas, money, sex, and power. You want something. An insatiable thing. That God, so I put it this way. Would you prefer uh, apple pie made with brown sugar and butter or some sugar substitute and some gelatinous oil that looks like foam when it melts in the dish? I want the brown sugar and butter, I don't know about you, and real whipped cream, not the artificial stuff, right? Because that, that fake stuff never tastes quite, I mean, it gets close sometimes, but it never tastes, you're shaking your head, it never tastes as good as the real deal, baby, right? You see, sin is insatiable. And when we do these things, we're basically saying, I want to be God and do it my way. The psalmist says, I love you because you hear me. As a result, I'll call on you the rest of my life. I'll call on you the rest of my life. Isaac Watts wrote, circa 1719, I love the Lord. He hears my cries. It's been rewritten and uh, reorchestrated many, many times. Richard Smallwood wrote an arrangement that Whitney Houston wrote. This comes straight out of Psalm 116. Let's listen to a part of Whitney, I think the best thing she ever sang.
dismiss now and just listen to the song. Um, I love the Lord. He heard my cry and pitied every groan. Long as I live and troubles rise, I hasten to his throne. That's Psalm 116. That was his inspiration. I love God because he hears me. He knows my groans. The cords of death encompassed me, verse 3, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I beseech you, save my life. I love God because he hears my prayer, number one. Number two, I love God because he delivered me from a brush with death. The cords of death and the terrors of Sheol are parallel. The idea of encompassed and came upon me are parallel. The repetition of the psalm to make a point. Those of you who know your Bible know that in the story of Jonah and in Christ's words, the cords of death encompassing is a reference to the messianic death of three days in the whale, three days in the grave. This is an allusion to that. He says, I called on you from the depths. I think the psalmist is ill, can't prove it. We don't know if it was enemies, but it seems more the imagery lends itself a little bit more to the idea of health. Uh, death is on a hunt, and he feels like he was trapped, and he prayed to God from that desperate estate, and God delivered him. Taken together, snares, death pangs, anguish, bounds of death. Sheol is a, a little bit complicated. It typically means hell, but not always Hell in eternity, as the Bible teaches, sometimes it can mean like the lower or the nether parts. It's a little complicated of a word, but generally speaking, it, you know, when it talks about the, Abraham talks about it's going to bring him down to Sheol, uh, this idea that it's going to take me to my death, so to speak. Um, he was in death's grip. He begs to Yahweh to save his life, and Yahweh saves his life. When was the last time you almost had a car wreck? And you hit the brakes, and you came really close. And, I mean, what, what's the worst sound in the world is having a car accident? Metal on metal is just, I mean, I get nauseated thinking about it. And if you had a really close call recently, and you pull over, and your adrenaline shot up, and you're perspiring, and your heart rate's going, and what do you think? Thank God, right? That's what we say. We go, thank God. I mean, it's more of a cliche, but it's true. We're thanking God we didn't have this terrible wreck. That's the emotion going on here. Emotion, the cords of death, the terrors of Sheol, I called out, save my life in death's grip. Verse 5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserved the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. He loves God because he hears his prayer. He loves God because he prayed to him at the point of death or despair, and God saved him. And finally, he says, I'm praying because this is all your grace. This is all your grace. I had nothing to do with it. If we were to unpack the idea of graciousness a little bit, it's not unlike supplication, but it's different in the sense that it's an inferior person asking a superior person for something. Someone who is less in life asking someone who's superior in life, and it uniquely fits to the divine. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's only used as an attribute of God. It's not used of man at all. You're in such trouble, you have to come to God. I mean, think of it this way. You and I don't need God when life is working. Let's be candid. If my marriage is good, my kids are good, my, my teens are civil, uh, 
If I got grandchildren, of course, the world's perfect. If my money, my health, my job, my, I like my career, I like what I mean, it's, it's always 68 degrees. I mean, you know, what, whatever it is that you like, I don't need God. You touch my health, you touch my marriage, you touch my kid, you touch my grandkids' health, you touch my job, you touch my pension, you touch my investments where I thought I was secure, you touch my health care. I work a little bit with human energy, then I get to the place, what do I do? I got to pray. That's what it comes to. Now think about the corollary. This is chilling, and it's not doctrine, but it's interesting. Would we pray and appeal to him the way we do, apart from the challenges and distresses of life? I wouldn't. I'll admit it. When my life's going well, I don't need God. The corollary is kind of chilling. Does God in his sovereign, providential, loving kindness allow us to go through fallen creatures in a fallen context, troubles, so that we have to depend on him, not ourselves? The ancients weren't any different. We're just the same. God's great grace is extended to him. Nineteen times in the Psalms we have this phrase, this attribute of God, that he was gracious to them in loneliness what junior high or high school person does not deal with loneliness in incredibly difficult ways? And the psalmist would encourage you, Psalm 25, 16, God is gracious in your loneliness, in distress, in transgressions, on and on through the psalms, 19 times. The idea is that I, as an inferior, go to a superior who is, can give me grace. Where human results can't, human resources can't help. Graciousness, the second one is righteousness, the third is compassionate. Graciousness is an inferior to a superior. Righteousness, very simply, doing the right thing in the right way at the right time. Uh, These words are Bible words. I mean, when's the last time you used righteousness in a sentence, for goodness sakes? And never, you know? I mean, it's not a word we, we economize. Righteousness is that God always does the right thing in the right way at the right time. We look at injustices in life. We lost our job. We lost our pension. We lo- the, the, the medical community did something wrong. My husband left. My wife left me. I, you know, I got this problem that was set upon me. And we get, you know, rightly so, upset. And we have to step back and say, God does the right thing in the right way at the right time. There is no injustice in God's economy. We can't see it in the fallen, broken injustice system in which we live, but God's always righteous. And third, he's compassionate. He shows mercy and kindness toward those who don't deserve it. We think we deserve it, but we don't. But his compassion comes out. His grace is extended not to the elite, but to the simple. I love whether it's David or some other psalmist when he refers to himself as simple. Verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low. There's the parallel, the simple and low. I'm just a simpleton. That's another word that's fun in the wisdom literature. In Proverbs, you have the fool and you have the simple or the naive sometimes translated. The fool is the one who you beat them with 100 blows and they still don't get it. Some of you, you think your teenagers are full? Just wait. They'll be okay. But the simple is the one who can learn. It sounds derogatory, you simpleton. You know, it sounds derogatory, but it's not. It means one who can learn. My father differentiated between the word dumb and stupid. I know it's politically incorrect, but he's dead. Uh, dumb was the inability to learn. 
Stupid was you just hadn't learned yet. So if he called you stupid, there was hope. <laughs> hey, stupid, get over here. I can learn something, you know. If you're dumb, you're in big trouble. The simple in Proverbs is stupid. He or she just hasn't learned yet. They haven't grown and matured yet. And when they grow mature, they won't be simple anymore. They'll grow in wisdom, which is the whole progression of wisdom literature. So you have gracious, righteous, and compassion. God towards compassion toward the simple. Now that the crisis is passed, he says rest. And this is the point of the psalm to, this, to verse 7. Now that the crisis is passed, he's going to talk to himself. Look at this. This is pretty unusual. Verse 7. Return to your rest, O my soul. But the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Now, I don't like self-talk when we go too far with it, but this is good self-talk. I love God because he heard my prayer. I love God because he saved me. Soul, rest. Rest. Stop worrying. Stop being anxious. You didn't have the car wreck. You made it. You're okay. Rest. Human nature hasn't changed. When you wait for the pathology report, when you wait for your son or daughter or aunt or uncle or dad to come out of surgery, when everybody's on pins and needles, when you go to the ER, Cindy and I have a host of friends, a host of friends who are dealing with these medical problems that are just, they, can, they permutate. And it's just, it's so discouraging. And you get one little piece of good news and you go, you collapse because your adrenaline's been running so high. But it's more than collapse, it's rest on my soul. Why? Why? Because the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You as the inferior have gone to the superior. You don't have the resources to fix this problem or you wouldn't be knocking on heaven's door. If it was the amount of money, if it was the right treatment, if it's a solution for your son or daughter, it's easy to write the check, buy the thing, do it, fix it. When you don't have the resources, it's a whole different story. The crisis has passed. He speaks to himself. You can rest in the Lord because he's been good to you. I share this story on many occasions. Some of you may have heard it before, but the idea of when, when you come to any of your resources, I've, I'm not looking for sympathy or for remedies. I've had four major back surgeries. I live with chronic pain 24-7. In 1999, this began, long story short, I am uh, nine, uh, three, three or four months trying to get to a doctor to get help. I'm in such intractable pain. I'm, I'm sitting in this really weird position because it was the only position I could sit without just excruciating pain in my L4, 5, S1 region, long story short. I'm I'm crying. I am, I'm a tough guy, and I'm crying. The pain is so bad, and we're waiting. You know, I'm, I'm not mad at the health community. They have a lot of sick people, and it's hard to deal with pain. That's the reality. So I'm waiting to see the doctor and waiting and waiting, trying drugs. Nothing's working. And I'm laying there, and I can still see it in Washington, D.C., our house in Virginia. And I'm crying, and Cindy, my poor bride, is sitting on the chair beside me. And I said, honey, I don't know what to do. I said, I'm not going to do this, but I could jump off a cliff. If this is my life, I'm done. I wasn't serious, but I'm just, you know, that's how much pain I was in. And I said, I don't know how to, I don't know how to go forward, honey. And I can still see her face. About a 10-second pause. And she looked at me and she said, Michael, he's been faithful to us to this very day. Why would he not be faithful to us tomorrow? And here, 28 years, was it 20 years later now, um, four back surgeries later, I manage, I'm out on opioids, I'm out on any addicting drugs. It ain't, it ain't fun. It stinks. I try not to wear it. 
but it stinks. But you know what my job is? God, I love you because you heard me. And you delivered me out of a place four times where I thought it'd be better to be dead than to live with that level of pain. And you know what? I'm going to rest in you. Because at this chapter of my life, you sustained me. You know, if you're sitting here, he sustained you to this very day. That's why you're here. He has sustained you unto this very day. If he never did one more thing for you, would you love God? That's what the psalmist is asking us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your righteousness, your graciousness, your compassion. We need to look back on our salvation and be so grateful for what you've done and never regret what we've experienced. As difficult as life can be, you loved first. We want to love you. We want to love you well. Give us the faith, the simple faith, just to trust you for today. Encourage each one of us here to press on, to grow in our love for you, that we can honestly say, I love you, Lord, because you hear my prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Have a great week.